This is an ABC podcast. It might be that all teachers change lives, but Joe Medlin does that in a really profound way by teaching adults how to read and write. Just imagine trying to navigate your life without the kind of literacy skills most of us picked up in primary school. Not being able to write a shopping list or read a text message. Without that basic ability to read, a trip to the supermarket or a train station is totally overwhelming. And forget all the deeper pleasures of self-expression or of fiction or poetry. And for adults who struggle with reading and writing, there's often a deep sense of shame. People think of themselves as stupid or as failures and spend their whole lives trying to hide the gaps in their literacy. It takes a lot of courage to learn to read and write as an adult. Jo has seen all kinds of courage, from the mother who wanted to be able to read bedtime stories to her kids, to the refugee who wanted to shape her life story into a poem. If you've watched the wonderful TV series Lost for Words on SBS TV, you've seen Joe's teaching in action. Hi, Joe. Hi, Sarah. That idea that people can have of themselves uh, if they struggle with reading or writing as being stupid or dumb, as a failure, how do you counter that? One of the things that we really try and emphasise is that this is a new beginning for them and that the things that they've encountered in the past aren't going to be the same as, as what happens in our classrooms. But I think there's also a really important message, and that is that we talk to them very much about what they want to say and listen to their voices. And, and that really happens before we look at anything like full stops or capital letters or spelling. And so everything is about what do you have to tell us? And we really listen to their stories and their messages and we emphasise that that's the point of reading and writing, to give information and to communicate. And so the, the other things that they've been afraid of shouldn't really hold them back if they have something interesting or important to share with us. How many Australians find themselves in that situation, Jo, of not being able to read and write as well as they need to for sort of just basic day-to-day life? Well, this is a really interesting statistic because I think we often think of that as a in the general public as something about migrants and refugees coming to Australia. But actually what we know is that around 43% of the population encounters some sort of barriers with their literacy on a, on a frequent basis. 43% and is huge. That's nearly half of all Australians. It is. It's really high. And I, I have started to try and flip this a little bit with people where I say, this isn't necessarily always about the person who is experiencing the literacy gaps. It might also be about the barriers that we're putting in front of people, complex forms, bureaucracy, things that are really challenging that don't need to be. And so using plain language and looking at options and alternatives is really important to do. And my experience is that there's many, many different reasons why adults haven't learned to read or write at the level that they'd like to be at. 
And usually what we tend to find out is that something else happened. It, it wasn't necessarily what was happening in terms of teaching. It was more what was happening in terms of learning. So some sort of trauma was going on at the same time or these days particularly I'm seeing a lot of young people coming out of school who've been impacted by bullying. In the past, people left school to go to work or look after other siblings. And so there's usually something else that has happened. When it does work, learning to read is the most profound kind of magic trick in a way. Can you remember yourself learning to read as a child? I do remember. I was always read to because I come from a family who love books. Everyone's always reading something. But I remember going to uh, school and a girl in my class in year two stood up for news and said that she read a book and I went home to my mother and said, oh, I have to learn to read now. I have to read a chapter book. <laughs> and it was it was sort of a light bulb moment, I suppose, where suddenly I went, oh, I, I don't have to have everyone read to me. I'll read for myself. And so I think the first chapter book I read was A Famous Five and I just became quite obsessed by those. And I've never left that genre, to be honest. I still read the cosies and the mysteries and the Agatha Christie's and... So is, did reading give you, when you describe those sorts of books, a particular kind of comfort or a, a kind of reassurance, those sorts of stories, that kind of imaginative escape that, that Enid Blyton and, and then Agatha Christie can give? Yeah, I think that's what I really love about reading. And I, I mean, I never became a literacy teacher to help people feel in forms for work. I became a literacy teacher because I love reading. And there's something about escaping into a book that when I'm reading, I can block out everything else. And I think that's so powerful. And it occurs to me that a lot of people might cope better with things day to day if they could have the power to escape into another world, even if just for a short time. Does loving reading mean that you loved school as a, as a kid? No, I don't think I loved school as a kid. I A lot of the time I remember at primary school, I didn't quite understand why we were doing anything or uh, why I was being asked to memorise spelling words, which could possibly explain why I'm not a fabulous speller, um, <laughs> which I always tell my students. I think I kind of always felt like I was a little bit behind a window looking in at the classroom and not kind of understanding what was going on. So to go home and read a book meant so much to me, whereas at school I was never quite sure why I was being asked to do comprehension on stories I wasn't particularly interested in. Uh, so... I think that kind of informs my own approach to adult education, to be honest, because I'm always very careful to explain to people, I'm teaching you this or I want you to learn this and this is the reason, so that it is always really relevant and I'm not just doing things for the sake of it. Having those kind of one-on-one -on -one conversations with your students, did that sort of thing happen in your primary school? No. What was it like, your school? I remember being at the biggest school in the state in New South Wales. It was Jasper Road Primary School. And in my grade, there were 11 classes. In my brother's grade, there were 13. And each class had over 40 children. I think I was always in the top class, but I didn't know that. And I always felt a little bit silly, like I wasn't quite keeping up with everyone else. 
Uh, it wasn't until I went to high school that, and we were taken out of the streamed classes and got to mix with everyone else that I started to think, oh, I think other people maybe feel a little bit the same as me. And I really started to enjoy school. Most of us over our, our schooling have a teacher we really remember, whether for good or for bad. Who was that for you? Oh, for me, that was my English teacher in high school when I did uh it was called Three Unit English in those days with Mr Evans at Borkham Hills High School. And he was wonderful because he was the first teacher that I felt really treated us as equals and he had a genuine interest in what we were doing. And I remember we were reading Jane Austen and he was probably at the time about my age. I thought he was very old. <laughs> um, and I have never forgotten the comment that he made, which was that, as I'm getting older, I'm weeding the garden of my life and Jane Austen is a flower to keep. And I kind of think about that now and think I think that's exactly how I approach life these days, looking at the things that make you happy and definitely reading is one of them. So did you always imagine that one day you'd be a teacher? Was that your plan at school? No, that was never my plan. I thought I was either going to be a national park ranger or then later I thought I was going to go on the Rainbow Warrior and save whales. <laughs> the life of big adventure in nature. How did you end up in the classroom then? I think I sort of fell into teaching. I didn't know what I wanted to do exactly when I left school. Um, and so I worked for a few years and then I thought I'd better go and do something. And I came from a family of teachers. My father's a teacher most of our family friends were teachers, lots of cousins, and I thought, oh, this is something I can do. I'll, I'll go and do that. And initially, I actually thought I'd be a high school English teacher. And at the last minute, I kind of panicked and thought, oh, no, I can't deal with teenagers, um, which is ironic, considering how many teenagers I've taught who couldn't stay at school <laughs> in my career. But I ended up at doing primary school teaching and then special education. So when you were teaching children to read, first of all. What did you learn about the way our brains take on that skill? Well, one of the things that really stood out to me was the difference between the children who came from families with a lot of books and that valued reading in comparison to the ones who came to school and encountered books for the first time. And I think that was a really, really big difference to me. The other thing that really stood out was unaddressed physical issues like gluey and needing glasses. And those things, if they weren't addressed in kindergarten and year one, suddenly made a really, really huge impact. Your family had first-hand experience of how life can get in the way of school. What happened with your daughter's schooling when she was little? Well, when my daughter was in kindergarten, she um, came to us on a Sunday and said, I've got pins and needles in my forehead. And to be honest, we weren't quite sure what that meant. So my husband gave her some uh, water, but in a medicine glass so that she thought it was Panadol. But within an hour, she'd actually collapsed and we rushed her to the doctors. It's actually quite emotional to talk about. Even 27 years later, um, she was pretty much unconscious when we got to the GP and he said, don't wait for an ambulance, get, get in the car and drive to the children's hospital. And she actually had viral meningitis. She was very unwell. They put her on a drip um, and we were in an isolation ward for about two weeks. And it actually turned out that my toddler had also had it, but undiagnosed 
just a little bit before. So because my daughter, who was in kindergarten, was then too unwell to go back to school, she missed most of the second half of kindergarten. When she got to year one, I realised that not only had she missed a lot, but she'd actually sort of gone backwards in what she knew. She'd started to write backwards in perfect mirror writing. Uh, she couldn't remember the words that she had. So in the end, I was very fortunate to be a casual teacher and I would take a couple of days off each week and teach her to help her catch up. And I thought, maybe this is the reason that I became um, a teacher in the first place. Wow. Do you have a sense from watching your daughter or watching other kids that is there like a window in time where our brains are really receptive to that reading and writing as an almost automatic skill? I think it's really important to get those really early building blocks. And I don't know what would have happened if I hadn't been a teacher and hadn't known how to teach reading and writing because that was my area of expertise. And so for anyone else, I think it would have been really difficult. We couldn't have paid for a tutor um, to to address the gaps that had happened. Um, and so I was really fortunate to be able to bring her up to a point where then she could come back into the school and, and was at the same level as everyone else. I think those really early stages are very important. But having said that, I've had students who are in their 80s and learn to read. So there's, it's never too late to have a go. What made you want to switch from teaching cute little kindergarten kids to stinky adults? Why? <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, sort of, um, it was another turn, I suppose, that I didn't mean to take. But I was pregnant and I wanted to job share with another teacher. And our principal, which is hard to imagine because this was 1995, said to us, oh, girls, you don't want to come back and work, just stay home and mind your babies. And it didn't go down very well. So while I was on maternity leave, I went up to my local TAFE at Borkham Hills and I just said, well, this is me, here's my experience, this is my CV, have you got any work for me? And the amazing head teacher there, Bev Lester, said, oh, actually, there's a class that you could take on Thursday night. <laughs> but I only think there'll be about a term's work <laughs> in, in this field. <laughs> and here I am 30 years later. <laughs> so this was your first class of adults. What, what was different? What's different about having a room with adults rather than a room full of little kids to teach? Oh, the difference was huge at that time because everyone wanted to be there. So they were so motivated and that was a huge difference. And so I had classes of people who were just there to change their lives and to make a difference to themselves and their families. When people make it to adulthood without being able to, to really read or write well, what skills and, and strategies have you seen them use to just manage to get through life? It's quite extraordinary, actually. And this, I suppose, is part of being an adult learner. It's a little bit two-way. So I actually learn a lot from my students. And Mike, who was in series one of Lost for Words, taught me so much about using technology and other ways to achieve things and to be successful. And so people very much have a support person, that someone trusted that they can rely on. They Now they can use technology voice to text and text to voice, absolutely amazing, as well as all the computer programs that we have. 
but very much people's strategies to work around having to read things are avoidance. So what things sort of like, things do people avoid doing then? Well, I think things like filling in a form in front of you. It might be, I haven't got my glasses uh, or oh, can I just take that home and getting someone else to assist. And that can work really well for people until that person who gives the assistance is no longer there for them. One of the first students you had when you were teaching those night classes 30 years or so ago was a millionaire businessman. Tell me about him. Oh, he was extraordinary. It, it broke a lot of stereotypes for me, actually, because that was my first experience with people who were already working. And it was a night class and he came into the class to learn to write his wife's name and the names of his three children because he wanted to, to write them a Christmas card for the first time. I didn't know very much about him at first, but he spent a lot of time out in the hallway uh, talking on a phone and then he'd come back in and then he'd go back out and have more phone conversations in the hallway and then back in. And eventually he said to me, I'm really sorry that I have to keep going out, but I'm talking to my solicitor. And it it turned out that he was buying a couple more businesses and it was all done verbally. He actually didn't even sign his own name. He just sort of did a bit of a squiggle. And the only people that knew that were his wife and children, his solicitor, and, and then me. <laughs> and if he was ever given anything to read, he would just say, well, my legal team does all this for me and pass it on to them. So, in fact, even the people that he employed didn't know about his literacy levels. And it was only because he wanted to write these cards, particularly to his wife, that he decided to come into a class. And could you help him do that? Yes, we spent a lot of time, very basic uh, phonics learning, very basic sight words, and he was able to write, you know, not not massively complex by the time we finished because there was a lot of in and out of the classroom. On a, lot, the phone. a lot of properties to buy and sell, businesses to buy and sell. And that is exactly right. <laughs> but he certainly was at the point when we finished um, the semester where he could write the cards that he wanted to. As we've mentioned, uh, Joe, you're one of the teachers on the SBS TV series Lost for Words. For people who haven't seen the show, what's the premise? The premise is something that I wasn't quite sure would work, to be honest, because I wasn't sure that we would find people to participate. So we have a group of students who are adults who are often hiding their literacy needs and they've come into the classroom and we do a very intensive nine-week learning course with them, totally individually focused. Uh, and then we measure their literacy levels at the beginning and at the end to see if they've improved. When you say you, you weren't sure that you'd get volunteers, why not? Oh, the stigma and the shame around not being able to read and write as an adult is really, really profound for people. And some of the people who we've had on the show, in fact, their partners, uh, husbands or wives, didn't even understand the extent to which they were battling to do everyday things. So there's a lot of embarrassment around this issue. And I, I just sincerely think they are the bravest people that I've met. To actually come into a class always takes a bit of bravery. It's really overwhelming and daunting to come back into education 
and to admit that you need some assistance with literacy, but then to do it on television, <laughs> it was quite amazing. <laughs> Watching those students, I think everyone cries at some point. A lot of them cry right at the, the beginning, you know, whatever differences in their walks of life or their personalities, it seems to really be touching the core of self-worth or, or lack of self-worth, this literacy. It is. And I was surprised at myself how many times I cried. And I cry watching it, even though I was there. Uh, there is something that seems to us like it's part of our humanity to be able to read and write, even though it's a skill. We're not born with that skill. But certainly the way we go through life means that it is just something that we just assume everyone has. And when you haven't got it, you're locked out of so much. One of the scenes, Joe, where I think I did see you shed a tear was um, when the students hold a high tea and invite along someone special to them. What moved you about that scene in particular? Oh, I think I'd made a little promise to myself in season two that I would not cry so much. <laughs> and I got to that high tea and it was just so beautiful to see the support and to know that, you know, that even though our students were really struggling with this issue that they had this beautiful family and friends behind them. There was just something so lovely about being part of that. They really share, you know, their lives with us as teachers. It's a, it's a very personal sort of journey to be a literacy student because of the shame and the stigma and embarrassment. So you really become very invested in them as people and they're just so lovely and so genuine. Whose stories have stayed with you out of the, the two series now of Lost for Words? Who's really touched you? Oh, I think they all have. <laughs> I'm in touch with all of them. Uh, I think that they're all quite amazing. Shell in uh, season one, I thought, was so brave and to overcome her stutter just was an unexpected thing that happened as well. And I think that sort of talks to the confidence that you get when you start to find out that you've got more skills than you think. I think in season one, Markety and Jared were really, they went on a really special um, journey for me because they had both come in for a particular purpose. Jared came to help himself get through his apprenticeship in carpentry and Markety came in to read to her children. But about halfway through, both of them realised that there was a whole lot more to the world of reading and that they could do things for themselves and for interest and to read for pleasure. And so to see them pick up their first book or their first magazine and say, oh, there's things in here for me that I'm really interested in, that really brought me to tears. I thought that's, that's why I'm here. One of the students in series two is Barbie, who I think is 72. What was her goal? Barbie wanted to be able to read and write her grandchildren's names. So every time she wrote a card for their birthdays, she seemed to spell them incorrectly and she felt really embarrassed about that. So that really drove her to come into the course. But the other lovely thing about Barbie is that she also wanted to show people that you're never too old to learn. And she's been really inspirational and motivational to you, other older people. Well, you mentioned that you'd taught someone in his 80s to read. Tell me about him. Oh, Bill, he was a lovely student. So he came into my class when his wife had passed away and she had done all their household reading and writing. So he'd, he'd worked his whole life 
Then they retired. She did all the bills and everything else. So he came on the premise that he wanted to be able to do all of that paperwork. But actually what he wanted to do was write his memoirs for his daughters. And he, it took him a little while to tell me that's what he wanted to do because he was embarrassed because he said, you know, I can't, I can't read and write, but I want to tell my stories and leave it for my daughters. So he did this beautiful journal that he, where he recorded all his memories for them. And then when he passed away, it was really touching because his daughter rang me and said that, you know, Dad has given us this and left us. It was beautiful. So how do you start teaching someone to read, to write as an adult, when they're sitting in front of you with whatever experiences they've had or whatever sense of failure they've come with, where do you begin as a teacher? Well, I always look at what they can already do. So we, we try and have a real strength-based approach. And I think that's really the lovely thing about adult learning, that you're saying, oh, well, actually, look at all the things you can already do. So you're already trying to set up that feeling that, I'm already quite capable and I'm just going to build on these things rather than going, oh, you can't do this and you can't do that. And so a pre-assessment or a screen, whatever you might like to call it first, is really essential to work out exactly where the gaps are. And then I like to do a really individual program to address those. And so it might be that somebody doesn't know how to sound out words and that's what I would help them with. But other people think that we have memorised every word and don't realise that we're using other strategies. So definitely an individual approach. What are some of the big fears people come with when it, when it comes to writing? Oh, judgement from other people is, is the number one fear. I'd say that's almost the only fear. What um, about the mechanics of writing? Because, you know, we've got punctuation and grammar and spelling, it must seem like there's so much you've got to be able to do before you can can write. Well, these are the things that I think really stop people. Everyone has a story, everyone has something to tell, but what we do is judge people by what we call the surface features. I think that's really empowering to explain to our adult learners that there's a difference between your content and your message and the surface features. So let's work on the content and the message and what you want to say. And then the surface features are something that we can go back and fix afterwards. And that depending on who you write for, you don't always have to have those perfect, but you can still express yourself. And so this is really powerful. For a long time, I worked in distance education. And what we used to see there was that once writing started to be unlocked for people, they would write pages and pages and pages of their stories um, because they had so much to say in their whole life history. The way you're describing it, Joe, you can see how much confidence is a part of what is given once someone feels better about their reading and writing, but also what's blocking uh, some expression. So there's there's one of the, the students in the most recent series of Lost for Words, Leanne, who really seems to be struggling around that issue. How do you help her? It is all about focusing on the message and being able to say, well, what you have to say is really important and these other things, they're not that difficult. We can teach you these. We can show you where the capital letters go and the commas and the full stops. And I think that general feeling of increasing confidence comes when those things start to fall into place. So very much saying there's nothing wrong with what you have to say or the way that you're doing it. Let's just make it so that when you're worried about 
being judged by other people, we've helped you fix up the things that you think they're looking at. For people who aren't confident with their writing, say, do they assume that the rest of us get it right first go? Absolutely. I think that is a huge thing that people assume. There's this real feeling that the rest of us know everything about literacy, that we write something the first go and it's all perfect, that we never come back and change and edit and proofread. And so what what we like to do and, and what you see on Lost for Words is that we give people what we would call a toolbox to say these are the steps that everyone does. We're not all sitting here magically creating fantastic books without a whole lot of proofreading and editing and redoing and revisiting. That's really powerful. And in fact, in season two, Graham really took that on board. So he had delegated all his writing to other members of his team at work, at home, his wife did everything. When we went through the process of let's just draft first, get all your ideas out, don't worry about any of these other things like spelling and punctuation and grammar, just tell us what you've got to say. He had a door unlocked for him and he started to journal every day he wrote and he wrote and he wrote. And sometimes he would say, oh, I want to fix this one up. And we would go through and that's when we would teach him the punctuation, the grammar, rewording. Um, But other times he said, oh, no, actually, I realise I've just written this for myself. I don't need to fix that one up. Now, that was something he never understood that he could do before. So that line about the perfect being the enemy of the good seems really applicable, particularly with, with adult learners. Although you get to see these amazing successes and these wins that students have at different places on, on their learning, I'm assuming that you've encountered students who, no matter how hard they've tried and no matter how hard you've tried as a teacher, it just doesn't happen for them. How do you help someone make peace with that? Uh, I think that... Everyone can learn to read and write, maybe for different purposes and to different levels. I really try and help people understand that the tools they're using aren't cheating. They're not workarounds. They're really great strategies. And I guess there's a lot of conversation that happens in adult literacy classes about the things at school that you were told were cheating, like asking someone for help, using your phone, these are not cheating. These are the things that we do. And and so I think empowering people to say, well, if I can't read every word on that page, it doesn't matter. I've got another strategy and I can use that without being embarrassed or without feeling like a failure. I think as long as we're functioning and we can do what it is that we need to do, then I think that's fine. And it's probably on the rest of us to really not judge people quite so much because, you know, what I always think is that perhaps the person who's scared to write because they can't use the beautiful words and they can't put in the right full stop and the right comma, perhaps they've got the most important thing to say and we're missing out on that. Not everyone can go on a a TV show to get help with their reading and writing. What's the first step for someone as an adult who wants to change this or who knows someone, loves someone who they see struggling with literacy? Where do people go in Australia? Well, definitely they can ring the Reading Writing Hotline and it's a referral service, so they'll have a list of anything that's nearby that you could go to for a class or a private tutor. There might be a TAFE, there might be a community college. Uh, And so if you ring the Reading Writing Hotline, then they will be able to help. What's the most rewarding part of, of the job you've described for us, Jo? Which part of it brings you the most pleasure? 
I think the part that brings me the most pleasure is definitely seeing people feeling better about themselves, uh, changing their lives, feeling more confident in helping their children, in interacting with other people. So it's all about that personal feeling. But, but also really for me, it's about when I see people reading for pleasure. As I said, you know, I didn't get into teaching to teach people to fill in work forms and write reports. <laughs> I did it because I love to read. <laughs> and that, that daughter of yours who was a little girl was struggling with school and missed a lot of her early education. How's she doing now? Well, she's now in her 20s. She has a science degree with honours and she's now just completed a master's in primary school teaching. <laughs> Oh, perfect. The, the family of teachers continues for another generation, hey? Oh, that is right. And actually my other daughter is also becoming a teacher, so it's definitely in the family. <laughs> jo, it's really, it's really wonderful work that you do. Thank you so much for talking about it with us on Conversations. Oh, thank you. I'm always happy to talk about literacy. Jo Medellin is president of the Australian Council for Adult Literacy. And you can see Jo, along with her wonderful students, on the TV series Lost for Words, available on SBS TV On Demand. I'm Sarah Konoski. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Konoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.